You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And we also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, skylightbooks.com. And you can find a schedule of upcoming events on there as well. It's my real pleasure to welcome Caitlin Tiffany onto the podcast today to talk about her new book, Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It, which is out now from FSG Originals. Caitlin Tiffany is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers technology and internet culture. She lives in Brooklyn. How's it going today, Caitlin? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's I love this book so much. It's a real pleasure to get you on here to talk about it. Um, and you have something picked out to read? Yeah. Um, so just to preface, um, I in the course of my daily scrolling today, I came across the the news that Lady Gaga would, is going to be in the Joker sequel, and then also came across the official account of the Empire State Building replying to that <laughs> news, um, saying, oh my god. Um, so that's sort of the context in which I felt like this would be like an appropriate excerpt to read. Perfect. Um, okay. <clears throat> um, One afternoon at my desk in the Flatiron neighborhood of Manhattan, bored out of my mind, I watched the Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg give a speech at Georgetown University, the subject of which was his choice not to fact check political ads, and was startled by the comments streaming down the side of the live stream. You're looking very handsome and dashing, looking very sweet and cute, lots of love for you. It ended with a fire emoji and a peace sign. This man left an indelible footprint in the sands of time. Thanks a lot for this wonderful platform called Facebook, all caps. When I messaged some of the commenters, they talked to me about loving him, calling him a great hero, and complimenting him on being very young. There's no such thing as fan internet, because fan internet is the internet. We don't see these things happening until they've happened. Now, every time a pop star or a real housewife or a woman politician makes a quip, it winds up the subject of homemade merch and reaction gifs. When a man is seen doing something during eating flaming hot Cheetos with chopsticks, leading the country of Canada with some amount of confidence, he becomes the internet's boyfriend for a season. When a girl does something interesting on TikTok, a dance, a funny face, a well-executed bit about how golf courses are causing the destruction of the planet, dozens of Instagram accounts dedicated to her pop up overnight. We love to fan so much, we'll take nobodies and make them into stars just because they film themselves skateboarding, drinking cranberry juice, and listening to Fleetwood Mac, or simply because they yodeled for a few minutes in a Walmart. We trot out a new icon every week, adulating them until they do something worthy of a fall or until we forget. We stan everything now from Supreme Court justices to new flavors of sparkling water. I've recently stand a local news blog, a stranger in the comments of a YouTube video, my own sister, a friend's puppy, and a bottle of skin contact wine. Fanning is the dominant mode of online speech, and the vitriol of defensive fans is the dominant mode of shouting people down on social platforms. When anybody anywhere says something critical about Taylor Swift, they know what kind of week they're in for. 
When a famous person's name is trending on Twitter, it hardly ever means they're dead. It usually means that some sizable group of online people has turned on them, called for their cancellation, and announced a so-and-so's over party. When President Trump announced that he and his wife had tested positive for the coronavirus, the replies to his tweet filled up with the same nonsensical fake hexes translated from English into Punjabi or Amharic that Swift fans had been using in the months prior to harass music journalists. Fandom is the dominant mode of commerce, the backbone of the influencer economy, the force behind the bizarre rise of self-aware brand Twitter, and the dizzying ascent of a handful of pop stars whose personal fortunes are larger than the yearly budgets for some small cities. Brand loyalty has been rebranded as fandom, as has passive consumption of all sorts of media from HGTV to Spotify playlists. The word audience slips seamlessly between concert halls and follower accounts. The word love drifts around like a leaf. Thank you. I, I think that's a great uh, excerpt to start with too, because you know, I've been telling a lot of people that I like this book and sort of describing that it's about One Direction fandom, but that's really, it's kind of about like the absurdity of engaging with the internet past a certain threshold or something. Yeah. Um, and and that, that excerpt does a great um, job of showing just like all different types of internet absurdity that have become so normal, but I find are sometimes very difficult to describe. Um, but I was just really curious about like where this book was born because I have a uh, suspicion, um, but I, I'm really curious of hearing like when you started and when you want to get into your own like um, deep dive in book form of your particular fandom. Yeah, um, I started working on it. Um, I guess I first started like working on the proposal in like December 2018 um, or thereabouts. And originally just knew that I wanted to do something about fandom that was for a general audience because there's obviously there's already a ton of academic writing about fandom. But at the time, um, I didn't think there was anything that was particularly accessible um, to a, a broad audience or or um, you know, nothing that was as current as I thought it needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and Prior to that, I had been working at The Verge, um, which is a technology website, as a cultural reporter. And I started there sort of in the middle of Gamergate. And then, um, you know, <laughs> the the run up to the 2016 election, um, the aftermath of the 2016 election, like the rise of the alt-right and the incel culture, et cetera, was something that um, I think was a real like turning point um and watershed moment for journalism um in in terms of like how how interested mainstream journalism was in the phenomena of the internet and um and just because of those sub particular subcultures being so like scary and un and strange and um difficult to understand, but also sort of like transparently of a piece with what was happening in the country politically and people were really startled by them. I think those subcultures got a lot of attention um, off the bat, including from myself and my editors at The Verge, but also just from, um, you know, the Times and like publications that weren't specifically about, um, weren't specifically digital or weren't specifically online. Um, and so then fandom, I felt like was, um, you know, 
in some cases like intertwined with those subcultures, but in in other cases sort of like separate and removed and not as easily observable or um, you know not as immediately shocking um, and not as in, it's not as easy to see how complicated um, and novel they are it, at first glance. It's just oh a lot of people really like this band. You know, there's nothing to write about. Um, so I I really wanted to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit um uh, just to I guess like make the argument um as the subtitle kind of does like in a little bit of an aggrandizing way but like somewhat sincerely make the argument that a lot of the ways that we talk on the internet now or even understand politics and culture and discourse is really informed by um, by fandom and and by viewing things through a fandom lens, just because of the constant presence of fans that um, you know people sort of eye roll or like don't think that they notice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You kind of touched on the last time I remember like reading about the internet in a nonfiction form and being this excited was that book Kill All Normies, which yeah. was specifically about 4chan and you know, the meme magic and alt-right internet communities that kind of helped Trump get elected. And it was the first time I felt like the internet had been written about with like competence and like the confidence of someone who like knows their way around rather than that academic lens that feels sort of like detached and um, too scientific or something. Um, and I appreciate this because it's like, if we think about like fortune on one spectrum, you would think of like One Direction fandom as the other end of it. And that's kind of where you're coming at it. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. And I wondered, you know, for people who haven't read the book, if you could talk a little bit about like how you got into One Direction and the nature of that fandom, because that is a little bit surprising too, because you're not like, you know, like you, you don't make the argument they're the greatest band of all time. And I think that's almost like kind of a, a wink that lives in that uh, community almost. Yeah, I think like... First of all, Kill All, Norm Kill All Normies is a great book. I really enjoyed that book, but I think like it's a great, great example of sort of the like cultural lean I was talking about because yeah. I think while that book like does talk quite a bit about Tumblr, it's, um, you know, not to be a hater, but I think it's in like a pretty um, dismissive way. Like it's Definitely. almost like blaming social justice warriors or like special snowflakes or whatever for like the rise of of um of like a reactionary internet politic but um so I guess One Direction fandom being primarily a Tumblr fandom like kind of fits in that category of um people that Andrea Nagel would have been referring to in that book um and it is really that fandom is really informed by like social justice discourse, like so many subcultures on Tumblr are, um, and sometimes in kind of convoluted ways, which I can get into in the book a little bit. Um, and I think that's that's true of Tumblr at its peak in general. It's, um, you know, like moral and political political prerogatives were sometimes quite tangled. Yes. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I got into the, the fandom just kind of by happenstance um I went to see a documentary about One Direction with my younger sisters when I was home from a break from college and I was just like extremely bored I hated school it was really not a good fit for me I was just like totally alienated by college social life and not having a good time so it was really like 
the first time in my life that I was spending a lot of time on the internet, um, just because I had had like a much more, just like a very offline childhood, you know, I like went to school and worked at the mall and played soccer and shared a desktop computer with my siblings and mm-hmm. um, didn't really, wasn't that curious, I guess. <laughs> um, so when I was in college was when I first started using Tumblr, I was sort of drawn to like the like alt lit sphere um, mm-hmm. because I wanted to be a writer and I was interested in that. And then after I saw the One Direction documentary, I was like, well, let's see what there is. Um, of that on Tumblr and then it was sort of like down the rabbit hole from there because there's so much yeah <laughs> on Tumblr. there is unlimited yeah about One um, Direction. and yeah the greatest fan in the world like I think the the fandom would say that they were the biggest rock band in the world which was arguably true <laughs> at, at the time yeah um and I think like you know, there's probably fans who would argue that the music is amazing. I think there are like some pretty solid like pop classics in their discography. But for me, it was never so much like, oh, I think it's genius that these boys are doing like pastiche of 70s and 80s rock <laughs> uh, <laughs> to impress their dads. Like, I just think that they're really fun. And there's just like something inarticulably exciting about it about like just like breaking up the day by having these images to look at and like the music is somewhat secondary even though it is very fun and they worked with some real professionals who who turned out some hits one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is the way you balance like you know your personal story of coming into the fandom and the music And then it's an incredibly well-researched book, um, like going back into like the birth of teen culture and just like the idea of teenagers as being autonomous and having uh, free time and money to spend and how that leads to advertisers focusing on them. And and then, of course, like the cliche of like the hysterically screaming girl and where, you know, and that leading into Beatlemania and then. One Direction kind of like the hysterical screaming girl being more like like there's a self-awareness to it or like you know that I thought this was so interesting it's not that you know you're like when you're screaming your head off at the show that you went to it's not because you're so captivated or awed by Harry Styles it's this other thing this experience of the event itself um, that that and I think that's so interesting and it like you know my primary reference point for fandom is like sports and it's like yeah like half of it is just being in a crowd it's not because like I think Tom Brady throwing a touchdown pass is going to change my life yeah yeah totally yeah I guess like the being in the crowd thing it's awkward to describe a little bit because it starts to sound a little like barbaric or like (laughs) fascist or something (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be like I just love the scream of the crowd <laughs> but I mean whatever it's like you know it's adrenaline it's like pretty self-explanatory like why that's fun right right screaming in public but I, yeah I but I think the thing that you argue against that really really compellingly is this idea that it's like the dismissiveness with which like teenage girls are viewed forever and as a, like, oh, they just are like not in control and feeling too much. And they're just like overtaken by this like stupid pop band. And you're kind of like, no, that's not actually what's happening here. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think like 
you know, it is like sort of what's happening there, but what I like, and I guess like, I want to be careful to like not go too far in the other direction either. I don't want to like claim that everybody who enjoys One Direction was like having some kind of like complicated intellectual relationship or whatever. But like, I just think if millions of people like something and are like having such a profound reaction to something like it makes sense to ask them about why and like surely there's going to be different explanations and and like different reasons why it's important to them and so like just simply being like well I'm a teen girl and I'm I'm having really big feelings and I and I don't know what's going on is like not like most people you ask like have very specific life stories and they'll tell you which is something I felt like was missing from a lot of um like especially when I was researching like coverage of Beatlemania there were these like really rich like narratively written stories by like famous rock journalists at the time or critics at the time and like none of them involved like saying to anyone like what are you doing here what do you want from this experience like what does this mean to you whatever like there was just none of that at all um and like not everybody is going to have a fascinating answer but like some people will I think it's just about like pushing back I guess on tropes that are kind of limiting to everyone without necessarily like glorifying um girls as girls you know like right, I, right. there's been a little bit of an overcorrection in that direction yeah I, well you've done a great job of like you know kind of showing like what you do in the book which is like never falling into like the trap of one extreme or the other um and being like critical of both ends at once which is you know I think difficult to do especially if something that you like care about personally um, and I wondered if like ha- your experience of like or uh, appreciation for the music or the community has changed since writing this book. Like, have you gotten like maybe sick of One Direction or is- has it just changed for you after writing a book about it? No, I mean, I it was really fun for me and that like I felt like it was the first time I was really actively participating in the fandom um, just because when I was first into One Direction, like I was lurking on tumblr in 2013 2014 um kind of receiving one direction fandom rather than contributing anything to it and um just because like i guess in my view at the time like the practices of fandom on tumblr or twitter didn't really like call on any skill sets i had like i didn't want to be tweeting all day about harry styles like that didn't seem like something that made sense for me like i didn't really know how to make any art i didn't know how to write fanfic like i'm not a fiction writer so this was like really the first time where i was like oh i have a skill that i can use to participate in the fandom in a way even though you know i know to some fans it doesn't feel like i'm participating it feels like i'm taking um but like for me that's what it felt like like I got to go back through all the stuff that like made me laugh like 10 years ago and like try to explain it for the benefit of like hopefully a general audience but hopefully also like people who remember those same weird things um and you know some of whom are excited to to see it like represented in this form yeah and that kind of 
brings me to like one of my favorite lines in this book was um, if I'm really honest, I like One Direction because their music reminds me of myself. I'm ni 19 and I'm not 19. I get to hold the two images side by side and think about the ways in which I'm changing and the ways in which I'll always be the same, which like, I don't know, I have plenty of music that it's like, I'll wonder like, why am I still listening to Bright Eyes at 31 years old? Yeah, like, do, yeah. I, do I, do I want to be sad? But it's like, I have all these associations with it. And that was the first time I felt like it had been explained to me, like what, what this thing was doing for me. Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty like, um, common, like music fandom experience that also came up in like the, I talked to in the book um Daniel Sabici who wrote this like amazing ethnography of Springsteen fans um I feel like it came up you know just sort of this idea that you can mark time in your life with fandom and it can be sort yeah. of the guiding principle um in a way that actually like provides a lot of structure and meaning rather than like derailing you and making you like <laughs> out of control um and actually weirdly like after I finished the book I was reading um Jimmy Breslin's book about the 1962 Mets um and in the beginning of the book he's talking about the Brooklyn Dodgers and like explains fandom exactly that way like I remember this day of this specific day of my life because it was the day that this thing happened with the mm -hmm. Dodgers and now like these images are associated forever and like this is how I keep track of my life story um so I think it's pretty consistent but like yeah music is a obviously like very evocative for memory yeah, you talk about your mom being a diehard Springsteen fan and, um, you know, that thing of how we can never really see our parents as people. They they can only be our parents to us and yeah. kind of like wondering what she was feeling as a teenager listening to I'm on Fire. And then, you know, that brought up and you have this like very uh, personal experience with it later, even though you're not the biggest Springsteen fan. And it's like, for me, it's my dad who's like obsessed with the Eagles who like, I've never really loved but you know like there are certain Don Henley songs that'll just like bring me back to childhood and are doing something for him that's completely separate um yeah yeah, yeah totally it's weird to see your parents like drift into like a different time in their minds just something I talk about in that chapter too like being a kid and like when my mom would listen to Springsteen and just like having this sort of like child's sense of like oh my mother has like gone someplace that is inaccessible to me like not that she was mm -hmm. like in a trance or whatever but um like I don't know kids I guess are can pick up on that stuff like it was weird to me to have that memory all of a sudden when I was trying to write the book I was like oh yeah I remember that would like almost hurt my feelings like I wouldn't understand yeah yeah just have a big sliver of perception so since we've begun talking about um, communities or a sense of ordering one's life, like we have to talk about Baby Gate and Larry Stylinson, yeah. which are two um, conspiracy theories within the One Direction lore um, that are, you know, handled so well here, so fascinating. And I was kind of curious if you've gotten like, you know, I don't know, some hate from the Larrys uh, for kind of being something of a skeptic. Yeah, um, I don't, I haven't heard much of them since the book came out, um, potentially in part because I haven't been looking for it. Like I don't mm -hmm. have Twitter notifications on for people I don't follow. So usually if someone's mad at me online, I don't know unless somebody tells me. Um, yeah. But um, they were definitely a, most upset when I was working on the book, when I was trying to talk 
to them mm. for it. Um, and, you know, one of them did eventually talk to me and I really appreciated that. One of them was like really adamant about not, and I could understand why. I mean, she was, yeah, very distressed by the idea of, of like anything being written about Babygate. Um, and particularly because I had written about it in the past in a way that, that she didn't like. And I think like, I don't know, like that experience was, I think, really helpful for me because I could look back on the things I wrote about Babygate when I, like at the time in 2015 or 2016, when it started happening and, and say like, you know, um, this probably is not the approach I would take again. Like, mm. I, I think some of the criticisms of these pieces of writing are unfair, but I think some of them actually like have some truth to them. Like I, um, you know, um, I could be less glib. Um, I could like focus more on like what actually matters about that story, which is right. less like, you know, popcorn eating and saying like, look at this bizarre thing. I can't believe anybody thinks this is true. And more thinking about like, well, what, what is it about the dynamics of fandom that lead people down the can lead people down a path of conspiracy theorizing? And what does it do to the community um, when some people really believe and others don't? And um, like, what what's the result of these these theories? And um, I think like that was ultimately a lot more productive than just like painstakingly recreating um, every like weird tangent that those theories took, which was very I mean, I have like hundreds of pages of notes for those chapters because there's just so much and you can really like, I mean, you get into a kind of a, a conspiracy board mindset when you're researching the conspiracy theory because it's like, oh, I see how these ideas connect. I see how these themes are like patterns repeat. Like I need to explain everything, um, but you don't because that um, is not helpful. <laughs> For, the, for everyone listening, Caitlin was just doing a lot with her hands, which is also like <laughs> one of the better lines in the book about trying to explain to friends and family what these conspiracies are. And like the hands are just going to come in of yeah, yeah. connecting dots, <laughs> drawing lines between things. Yeah. Yeah, totally. They just come up on their own accord. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed how um you did a really nice job of kind of boiling down like um the genre tropes of a gossip conspiracy and how it like almost always involves like a poisonous woman who's taking some famous man and leading them astray and um, this is really into baby gate and i that's what made those chapters really great i think is that like we kind of like go down into the weeds but then come up for air and like remember like why we went down there in the first place mm -hmm. and, and what these stories like you know, provide to the people who believe in them and and also how those things kind of apply across um, various conspiracy, not just like that specific one. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like Tumblr conspiracy theories too, which like, I just, this isn't even in the books so much. It was like more something that became clearer to me, like especially through the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard conspiracy theories was that like, uniquely I mean obviously anybody who's getting really invested in conspiracy theory like thinks they have some kind of like moral superiority and and are going to like uncover some great truth and be like a hero but I think like tumblr conspiracy theories uniquely are really tied to like the moral superiority that superiority that comes from like various social justice causes mm -hmm. so like with 
Johnny Depp, it was, oh, like, you know, we're not actually undermining me too. Like we are actually more progressive than you because we are drawing attention to like male victims of abuse. Um, and then with Babygate, it was, um, and similar conspiracy theories. It's like, if you um, don't believe that Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson are secretly in love, it's because you're homophobic. And so like, that's part of why we're doing this. And then also, if you don't think that Louis Tomlinson's child's mother is like a manipulative schemer, who's like out for money and free plastic surgery, like that's because like you are afraid to criticize women and like the true feminists like must call out like other women because we are the ones who are like smart enough to see them for who they really are. Um, so that was like something that I think ties, ends up tying like a lot of those conspiracy theories together. Definitely. And there's that, you know, I wish, I, I wish it wasn't true that, that yeah. whole trope of the conspiratorial thinking, I think it's really important to like understand these things because obviously conspiracy theories are an important part of our social fabric right now. And, you know, there's always kind of like the, the knee jerk thing of just wanting to like shake someone and dismiss what they're thinking, but it's like, they've, they've already taken your counter arguments into account in, in their like worldview. And I think like being able to understand that, like, is kind of just like the entry fee to having a meaningful conversation with someone who has like views that might seem crazy to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I enjoyed you talk about um, Richard Lawson, who is a pop culture writer and how he would make these kind of winking references at the Larry Stylinson uh, conspiracy and how what he thought was kind of an ironic joke um, was taken at, uh, as sincere by, you know, the adherence of that. And it really reminded me of, um, you know, the Pizzagate conspiracy. There was some like political writer who like went into Comet Pizza, which was like the pizza place associated with that conspiracy. And he made like a vine or some sort of like, or like put these videos on Twitter of, of him just like going into a pizza restaurant and acting as though like everything was like like kind of nefarious like yeah. oh look at this like all the bathrooms are locked like I wonder what's going on in there um and he thought he was making a joke and then like the people who work there like kicked him out because it's like dude like someone came in here with a gun like it's not a joke to us but yeah. then because of that this joke ends up being taken seriously by like pizza gators and and so it kind of like uh, the reason I bring all this up is I wonder like like how dangerous irony is now or something or like I don't know there, there's something about like like almost any joke that's made feels like there's going to be like some small pocket that takes it like dead serious as fact yeah I think like mm -hmm. I guess like part of part of what made like tumblr so interesting was like the its seclusion from the rest of the internet and mm. the fact like build their own worlds there which is like great but also part of why it was like would lend itself to conspiracy thinking was because you could really craft your own information reality and um like circulate it amongst your followers there and I think like that's probably like the the issue with the internet that you're touching on is like just the kind of the context collapse and like just 
limitless options of information that you can rope into like any narrative that you want. So um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's probably partly why people are trying to retreat onto like smaller or more private social media networks, mm -hmm. but it just seems like there's too much out there and um, like just people just grab whatever they want and like create whatever world they want to see with it, be it like a celebrity love story or like a pedophilia ring in a pizza shop. <laughs> yeah. And there was something too about, um, you know, you talk about the, the kind of like extreme or even like violent language fantasy thing of like uh, Harry Styles run me over with your car. Yeah. Um, which isn't like, you know, I'm not suggesting this is like a bad or dangerous thing, but there's something there about like just the internet leading any like expression to its most extreme form. Yeah. Um, that's like kind of explored in this book that I thought was like highly interesting. Yeah. I think it's like a lot of that is like, you know, like Twitter language has evolved in this funny way where like the way to get attention is to say something in the most dramatic way possible. Right. Like as time has gone on, like the drama, like, has gotten like bigger and bigger and more ridiculous in a way that I think is like really funny a lot of the time. Um, like in the situation of like saying like Harry Styles, like break my back, like a glow stick or whatever, like mm -hmm. that's funny. Um, that's like a cool evolution of, of expression, but like, obviously at the same time, it's also kind of, um, you know, I think like a big thing about that people hate about Twitter now is the way that people frame like any minor injustice as like, like absolutely outrageous. Like I can't believe I live in a society where I have to get spam calls every single day. It's like right, right. sometimes things just aren't the best, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like we don't have to get worked up into a frenzy about everything. Only yeah. Harry style. The other thing that I was thinking of um, coming into here is you talk about our very modern obsession with reconciling our politics with our consumer choices, um, and kind of like. The backlash that came from, I can't remember what the exact comment Liam Payne made. Um, and then there was the whole thing with Harry Styles and his reluctance to like carry the Black Lives Matter flag on stage. Um, and I think that's just, it, it's a really interesting thing because you see that happening everywhere uh, across the political spectrum and, you know, whoever your chosen celebrity is. Yeah. And I kind of wonder like how much of that is like, the the projection of like if I were in their shoes I would use my platform more judiciously yeah um, or something yeah yeah no I think that's totally part of it I think like the word platform is so interesting to me when people say like use your platform yeah um, it, that's like such a strange concept that like obviously didn't exist for me when I was a teenager like caring about celebrities just this um it's just funny and sort of odd to think about like if anybody anybody with like a, a certain number of followers above some threshold has some kind of like almost like divine duty to use it um to promote like the cause of justice in the world um and I'm not even saying that's untrue it's just like it's funny how like pervasive that idea is and I think in the book um you know I I, I think like some of it probably is just like misplaced um, or overly optimistic about what celebrities can realistically accomplish. But, but I think it also makes a lot of sense to 
feel like as a young person that you haven't had much of a say in how like any of the other power structures in the country um, that you live in have been arranged, but you feel like you did participate in elevating like this one person and therefore they have this obligation to represent you. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an obligation, but it's also, it's obviously also emotional. Like you, you don't want them to turn out to be someone you don't like or respect, but, but I think people feel really entitled to this, yeah, like this sort of like populist, um, pop star where I, I gave you your career. I, I like, voted for you mm-hmm. <laughs> with my tweets and um and now we, here we are we crafted your public image together and like i i think like the causes i care about deserve some of the dividends of that definitely definitely yeah um my last question is um if you have any insight into how the fandom is reacting to the Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde, Florence Pugh drama, which I just learned about at work yesterday. I don't know if you've oh heard God. about it. No, wait, what's the Florence Pugh drama? All right, hopefully I won't get in trouble for uh, for regurgitating a, a, something I heard. Um, but I guess Olivia Wilde is directing some movie with yeah. uh, Harry Styles and Florence Pugh in it. And I guess Harry and Olivia are having an affair and Florence Pugh, but this was like while... Olivia and Jason Sudeikis were still married and Florence Pugh felt that she had been sort of like um, forced to carry their secret for them and so now is sort of spitefully not promoting the movie like not tweeting or reposting about it and so there's all this uh, you know I've done zero research on this but this is from Emily and Lance my co-workers uh, who told me about it yesterday and it sounds oh juicy God. yeah um, I mean <laughs> I like I think it it makes sense. Um I think <laughs> the Tumblr fandom like the you know the baby gate crowd hates Olivia Wilde of course. Um they call her Ho Olivia. Oh um, right. Yeah, but I think other people like her. I remember there was like some disappointment about um like Harry had been like flirting with Lizzo for a while and then started dating Olivia Wilde and people were disappointed about that. <laughs> I think like an age gap is cool and I also think they're like kind of um exactly on the same level of like of celebrity wokeness (laughs) (laughs) they're like they're like as progressive as as they can be without like actually understanding anything yeah Yeah. without there being any real but i also sympathize with florence i like her as a celebrity because she's super weird um yeah she's mad at them then i'm mad with her yeah, yeah, the May Queen, not not pleased, doesn't want to be carrying around <laughs> other people's secrets. Who wants to do that? Who wants to keep someone else's secret like that? That's not fun. I know, that's yeah. sad. You got to be yeah. at the rap party and see the husband and not say anything, you know? You got to have yeah. that, like, inner moral conversation the whole time. I mean, I've never been, like, privy to an affair, but I, I mean, I, I do love... Not even in high school? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, nobody that I went to high school with was having sex. It was oh. <laughs> very painful. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that explains it then. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm just going to read one more line to you. I hope it's not uh, going to embarrass you, but I thought this was just such a great encapsulation of what the internet is. Uh, and then I'll let you go. But it's um, real scrutiny of fangirls would reveal everything the internet has made possible. 
unimpeded creativity, remarkable feats of will, the unexpected easing of loneliness, the goofy precursors to solidarity, but also devastating atomization and division, overstimulation realized as constant anxiety, emotion mutilated into absurdities, attention rendered as addiction, passion fueled into target harassment. I thought that was just such a great, um, pretty way of describing what the internet is and what it does. Um, you know, I, I was like taken with this book right away just from the topic because I like reading about niche internet communities and want to see them explored. Um, and then I was surprised and pleased at how funny and how good the sentences were in this book. Um, and so congratulations. This was awesome. And thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it, especially like <laughs> it's nice when people read parts of it because I feel like in a lot of interviews, I'm just like, well, I spent a long time figuring out how to word this on paper. And now you're just asking me to like ad lib a worse version out loud <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> so. No, yeah, I, I feel like when I'm reading, <laughs> picking nonfiction, I'm often picking it based on topic. And then when the language is exciting, it's such a treat. And that was very much the case with this book. So there was, you know, I, I borrow books from work. And, you know, the second I mark them up, I have to make the decision to buy them. Um, yeah. And that happened very quickly in this book. You know, it's just wow, like, I have to underline. Um, so yeah, this is Caitlin Tiffany joining me today. We were talking about her book, Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It. Um, that's out now. You can come by Skylight and buy it at the store or order it on our website. Um, thank you so much, Caitlin. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.